Well, Genesis, needless to say, I'm sure everybody in here know, you know that Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And it is very likely the most important book ever written. Now, of course, the Bible itself as a whole, all 66 books, is without a doubt the book which has had the greatest influence on mankind and on history. However, the Bible, as we know, consists of many books. It consists of 66 books. And the book of Genesis lays the foundation for all of those books, all 66, or all of the other 65. So if we were to remove the book of Genesis from the Bible, as many people, especially in our day, would like us to do, if we would remove Genesis from the Bible, then the remainder of the Bible would not be understandable. If we had never heard of the book of Genesis and the information that this book reveals to us, then the rest of the Bible simply would not make sense. It would be like having a building without a foundation. It would be like trying to build a house from the roof down. It's impossible. It would be like having a tree without any roots. What would happen to that tree? It would simply fall over. If we were to simply begin reading our Bibles in the book of Exodus, because there was no Genesis, then we would wonder, wouldn't we, where the Jewish people came from? Actually, to be honest, we'd wonder where all people came from, because we wouldn't have that answer. But we'd wonder where the Jewish people came from, and we'd wonder why they were slaves in Egypt, because when we start out Exodus, there they are, slaves in Egypt. And we'd wonder why God is so focused on this one small group of people in one small little part of the world. And we may be even inclined to wonder if God is not a respecter of persons because he seems to care so much about the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament. Furthermore, if we were to begin reading our Bibles just in the book of Exodus, we would be very confused about the New Testament's doctrinal teaching concerning man's desperate need for salvation. And also, we would be confused about his redemptive plan for man through his son, Jesus Christ. We would be confused because we would never have heard about the vital information concerning um, man's fall. We would never have heard the information regarding the origin of all things, including man himself and his fall into sin and the subsequent curse. And we would not have heard about God's promised seed of the woman, who is, of course, the Messiah Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. Genesis is the biblical book which gives us the critical information that we need to know about the origin, the beginning of all things. When we know the origin of things, then we understand their meaning. We understand also the meaning of life itself. Without the book of Genesis, this information would forever be inaccessible to mankind because hard as man tries, hard as the scientist and the philosopher tries and the religious man, man is and he always will be unsuccessful in discovering the origin of all things apart from the truths which are revealed to us in the Bible, particularly, of course, in the book of Genesis. Now, as we will discuss further in lessons to follow, man's belief 
about his origin does definitely affect his belief concerning his purpose for existence, why he is here. What he believes about where he came from affects his purpose for existence, and it affects his final destiny. The future, we could say very accurately, is all bound up in the past. If a person holds to a naturalistic, evolutionistic concept of origins, in other words, you know, naturalistic, that everything came about by natural causes, evolutionistic, you know, that mankind came from a primeval slime somewhere. If one believes that, then inevitably he is going to have a naturalistic, evolutionistic, humanistic program for the future. However, if one believes, as Genesis teaches, that all origins came from an omnipotent, meaning an all-powerful, personal and loving creator God, then he will also believe the divine purpose of history as revealed in the rest of the scripture. And he will realize the ultimate victory and the glory of the final end of God's overall program of redemption, his overall program for history, his story. And of course, this is what we studied the last two years, right? As we looked at the book of Revelation, we found out where everything is heading, how it is all going to end up, and it will eventually end up with God being the victor. He's already the victor. He won the victory where? Up at the cross. So believing and understanding Genesis is mandatory. It's a mandatory prerequisite for understanding God and understanding his meaning, meaning and his purpose for man. The word Genesis means what you all know beginnings or origins so this is the book of beginnings it is the book which presents for us the beginning of everything except God because God is eternal he has no beginning and no ending Genesis gives to us for example the beginning or the origin of the universe in all of literature and science and human philosophy, the words of Genesis 1-1, you all know it, say it with me, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Those words, in all of literature, all of science, all of philosophy, those words stand unique. All other theories, all other suggestions, all other reports, philosophies regarding the origin of the universe, whether they are in the form of ancient myths or if they're in the form of modern scientific theories, all of them begin with some kind of eternal matter or energy. Now, of course, they have no explanation where that supposed eternal matter or energy originated from. I guess it was just always there. But they always teach some that everything originated from some eternal matter or energy in some form or another, which then in a gradual process produced all other existing life forms. Only in the book of Genesis are we told of the ultimate origin of not only matter and energy, but also of time and space. And where did all those things originate from? God, the only eternal one, God himself. 
So Genesis gives to us the origin or the beginning of the universe. It also reveals the origin of order and complexity as well as the origin of the solar system, which includes our Earth. It includes the sun, the moon, and the other planets. We are, in fact, told in Genesis about the origin of all the stars of the heavenlies. Furthermore, Genesis presents for us the origin of the atmosphere around this earth and of the hydrosphere. The earth alone is uniquely equipped with a large body of liquid water and a global blanket of oxygen-nitrogen gaseous mixture. Both of these things are absolutely necessary for life, aren't they? And we are the only planet made by God. We are special so that he could put life on this planet. And speaking of life, Genesis reveals to us the origin of life itself. Genesis explains how living organisms have come into existence from non-living chemicals. The wonders of the reproductive system and the unbelievable complexity which is programmed by God into the genetic systems of plants and animals are totally unexplainable except by way of special creation by a creator God. And Genesis gives to us the origin of man, the most highly organized and complex being in the entire universe except God himself. Man is not only fearfully and wonderfully made, but he also possesses a nature because God was made in the image, I mean, man was made in the image of God, so mankind possesses a nature which enables him alone, of all living creatures, to, to um, think about such abstract entities as love and to appreciate beauty the aesthetic world. Man alone has emotions. Man alone is able to think about his own purpose for existence and to wonder about his meaning. And that makes him totally separate from all other living creatures. And Genesis contains also the origin of the institution of marriage and of the family. Marriage was designed by the creator to be monogamous one partner for a lifetime. Polygamy, in other words, having many spouses, and divorce, infanticide, abortion, homosexuality, fornication, adultery, pornography, and all other such corruptions came later. They weren't in God's original plan, were they? They came later, and they were a result of man's sin. And then speaking of sin, Genesis also gives to us the origin of evil and sin. The beginning of physical and moral evils in this universe is explained to us in the book of Genesis as a very tragic and yet the good news is temporary. It's tragic but it's only a temporary intrusion into God's perfect world. And we saw when that will all be eliminated when we studied Revelation, didn't we? One day there will be no more sin. But evil was permitted, God allowed evil to intrude this world so that God himself could uh, demonstrate, could manifest some of his attributes of such things as unconditional love and grace and mercy 
and justice. Those things could not have been demonstrated or shown or manifested to his creation apart from his redemptive plan for mankind. If man had never fallen, God could never have shown his unconditional love and grace and mercy to him by providing a way for him to be uh, back in a relationship with him. So God permitted evil. He did so also in order to, ha- to allow man freedom and responsibility. God did not want to be, to, uh, he did not choose to be worshipped by men who were forced to love him and glorify him and worship him. Instead, God has chosen to be worshipped and loved by those who of their own free accord have chosen to love him and worship him. And Genesis also contains the record. Oops, I think I got behind here. It also contains the record of the beginning, then, of God's plan of salvation for, uh, of man's deliverance from sin and death through, of course, the promised seed of the woman, which we read about in Genesis 3.15. The first time we hear about the evangelistic, it's called the Proto-Evangelium because it's the first mention of the promised Redeemer, Genesis 3.15. We'll be talking about all of these things when we get into the book. And then, too, Genesis gives to us the beginning of the origin of language. Where did languages come from? Where did different ethnic groups come from? It gives to us the origin of government, the origin of civilization and society, the origin of culture, the origin of the nations and the races, and the beginning of the hope for the promised land, which is a biblical symbol of heaven itself. So the book of Genesis truly lays the foundation of all history. It is also the foundation of all true science and all true philosophy. Even more importantly, the book of Genesis is the foundation. It lays the foundation for all the rest of Scripture. It lays the foundation for all of the other 65 books of the Bible. In the other Old Testament books, for example, we find that Adam, the first Adam, is mentioned in not only Genesis, but in Deuteronomy, in Job, and in First Chronicles. Noah, see, without Genesis, we'd say, who is this Adam? Noah is mentioned in addition to Genesis, in First Chronicles, Isaiah, and Ezekiel. Abraham is mentioned in 15 different books of the Old Testament. And Jacob is mentioned in 20 other Old Testament books other than the book of Genesis. Jacob is also mentioned at least in 17 books of the New Testament. Every mention of the Jewish people and every mention of the nation of Israel is actually an acknowledgement of the authority of the book of Genesis because Israel became the new name for who? Jacob. And it was Jacob's 12 sons who begat the 12 tribes of Israel. So every time you read about Jacob or Israel, it's a confirmation of the authenticity and the historicity 
of the book of Genesis. Without Genesis, there would be no explanation for the nation of Israel and the Jewish people, and for that matter, for the rest of the Old Testament, which basically centers on this special people and this special land. Now, the New Testament scriptures are even more dependent on the foundational book of Genesis than the Old Testament books. Adam, for example, is mentioned eight times in the New Testament, and Noah is also mentioned eight times. And half of those eight times where Noah is mentioned, it's the Lord Jesus himself who is talking about Noah. Abraham is mentioned by name in 11 of the New Testament books. And Jacob, as I already mentioned, is in some 17 books of the New Testament. At least 165 passages from the book of Genesis are directly quoted or referred to, alluded to, in the New Testament. And many of those are referred to more than once, which actually gives, makes a total of some 200 direct quotations or allusions to Genesis in the New Testament. So summing all that up, you could almost say, well, if you don't accept the book of Genesis as being accurate and reliable, then what do you have to do with a great deal of the rest of the Bible, including the New Testament? Kind of have to throw it out or allegorize it. Now, it's also very interesting to discover that the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis, and the first 11 chapters are the foundation for the foundational book, okay? So I really doubt seriously that we'll get past chapter 11 this year. We'll be doing good if we get through chapter 11 this year. These are the foundational books of our entire faith. But those first 11 chapters talk about the creation, they talk about the fall, they talk about the flood, and they talk about the Tower of Babel, very, very critical areas of uh, discussion. These first 11 chapters, which have been, of course, the chapters most attacked by the unbelievers and by the liberals and by the skeptics, they are the chapters which have had the greatest influence on the New Testament. The Holy Spirit saw to that. There are over 100 quotations or direct references to Genesis chapters 1 to 11 found in the New Testament scriptures. Every single one of the first 11 chapters of Genesis is alluded to somewhere in the New Testament. And furthermore, every single one of the New Testament authors refers to the writings of Genesis 1 through 11, somewhere in his writings. The Lord Jesus himself specifically referred to each of the first seven chapters, and he quoted from something in Genesis 1 to 11 at least six different times in his earthly life. So let me, and let me say this too, that not one of the many instances where either the Old Testament or the New Testament writers refer to the book of Genesis, do those writers even hint at the idea that the events or the people to whom they refer to, to whom they refer, were either mythological or allegorical events or people. Instead, they view Genesis as being reliable history and they view its contents as not only true, but authoritative. So it is really logically impossible 
for a person to reject the historicity, in other words, the fact that it's true history, when I say historicity, historicity, that's what it means, that it's true history. It's impossible for a person to reject the historicity and the divine inspiration of the book of Genesis without doing serious damage to the rest of the Bible, to the reliability and the divine authority of the whole rest of the Bible. If the Garden of Eden, Adam, is merely an Eve, is merely an allegorical character, someone who didn't really exist, or some glorified ape or something, then logic would demand that the second Adam also be allegorical. And who is the second Adam? The Lord Jesus himself. If the first Adam did not really fall into sin, then there is no reason for either he or his offspring to need the second Adam, the Lord Jesus. If everything in this universe can be explained by the natural process of evolution, then there is no reason for a savior, and there is no truth to the Bible, and there is no reason for you and I to look forward to a glorious future one day as born-again believers in a place called heaven. There's actually no reason for us to meet here today. We might as well disperse and go home. If the first book of the Bible, the foundational book, the book of Genesis, is not true. And, and also, if it's not true, then none of the testimonies given by the various Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles who did believe it was true, none of their testimonies are reliable. So as you're leaving, throw your Bible in the trash can. They must have all been deceived, or else they were liars. They were purposely deceivers. Above that, the Lord Jesus Christ himself must have been deceived or he must have purposely been a deceiver. And if that is so, then his own testimony as to his omniscience and his omnipotence and his omnipresence as deity, that testimony becomes total blasphemy. Our faith in his substitutionary death on the cross to cover our sins so that we might have eternal life would be void. It would be ridiculous and our lives would stand as rightful objects of mockery to the world. They'd have every right to laugh at us. Christians need to understand. They need to understand that they cannot logically toss out the book of Genesis or make it merely allegorical without also having to toss out their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we will be spending a lot of time talking about this as we get into the book especially when we have a long discussion on creationism versus evolutionism. However, the good news is that you don't have to leave here this morning and you don't have to toss away your Bible because, as we will continue to point out over and over and over again, the book of Genesis and, yes, even the first 11 chapters and, yes, even the first two chapters, which talk about creation, are absolutely true and they are historically reliable. And there is plenty of evidence in this world to prove that they are reliable and true. The Lord Jesus Christ was neither deceived nor was he a deceiver. He is, in fact, who he claimed to be. He is the very Son of God, omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipotent. And he is, if you want him to be, he is your Lord and Savior. And for most of us, he is already. Okay, I didn't give you the outline, did I? 
forgot about that. We have just been talking about the foundation of history, part one, and just wrapped that up, and now we're going to move into a discussion on the author of the book of Genesis. Like all other 65 books of the Bible, the book of Genesis was written under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. Men just didn't will to sit down and write a book of the Bible. Didn't come by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by whom? By the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Ghost. Now, the question we want to discuss at this point in our study this morning is who was the holy man or who were the holy men whom the Holy Spirit used to write the book of Genesis? Now, there have been many varied suggestions to this question. Our conviction... And I know that the leaders in this study stand with me on this. Our conviction is that the great lawgiver and deliverer of the Jewish people, the prophet Moses, was the human author. Now, we know God the Holy Spirit was the divine author, but we are convinced that Moses was the human author of Genesis. And I'm going to give you reasons why we hold to that conviction in a minute. There are, however... Many others in Christendom, the vast majority, I'm sorry to say, who believe differently. Now, Genesis itself is silent. The book, in other words, does not tell us who its author is. Yet, the evidence is overwhelmingly strong that Moses was indeed the author. But before we get into that evidence, let's see what the other people believe. And why? And the reason I'm going to do this, I know it gets a little bit technical, but the reason I'm going to do it is because surely some of you are in churches which, where the leaders do believe this, and surely some of you have heard this before, and maybe it's upset you, Let me, and I want to show you why I don't believe it's true. Some of you maybe have never heard of this before. I have heard of it. I have been in a church where this was the, the teaching. And if you haven't, maybe somewhere in your life you'll run into this. Or maybe your children one day will run into it or somebody you know. And so I want us, our purpose in this ministry is to be equipped. And so I'm going to tell you about what is known as the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis, which is held by the vast majority of liberal theologians and commentators and even some conservatives, is a theory which holds to the idea that a number of unknown Jewish writers and editors who lived during the period of Israel's history from King Hezekiah, around 850 B.C., to Ezra, who lived about 500 B.C., that these Jewish writers over that period of time from 850 to 500 B.C., that they are the ones who compiled the book of Genesis. Now, this documentary theory states that these unknown Jewish men gathered verbally transmitted legends and traditions which came not only from their own Jewish ancestors, but also came from the Egyptians 
and from the Babylonians and from the Sumerians and other ancient people. And they put all these traditions and these legends together in a book form. And then they purposely allowed the rumor to be spread that the book of Genesis had come down from Moses. Actually, they even put it in the book of Exodus, Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Because the documentary theory not only holds to the fact that the book of Genesis was written this way, but also the other four books of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch stands for the first five books of the Bible. Penta, or pendi in Greek, is the number five. So the Pentateuch is the first five books that we call the books of Moses or the books of the law. Well, the documentary uh, hypothesis says that those first five books plus the book of Joshua, that all those were written by these Jewish people. Now, this hypothesis was first suggested to the world, first time it came into being, by a French physician. Now, notice I didn't say a theologian, a physician, a medical doctor, named Jean Ostruck. And he lived around the time of, uh, well, he came up with this in the year 1752. Before that, before 1752, there was no serious questioning at all of Mosaic authorship for the first five books of the Bible. Well, um, 35 years later, nobody really paid much attention to this man's hypothesis, but 35 years later, his theory, which is also known as the J-E-D-P theory, or the J-E-D-P hypothesis, this theory was expanded upon by a German historian and a biblical writer named J.G. Eichhorn. The theory, however, did not become fully developed and popularized until the late 1800s, late 1800s. So I'm talking about 100 years ago, and it was popularized by a man named Julius Wellhausen. Proponents of this view, those who believe this, and there, believe me, there are many of them out there. Most churches are full of people who accept this Authorship, this hypothesis for the authorship of the Pentateuch. They say that there are four major sources for the Pentateuch, each one represented by one of these letters, J, E, D, and P. Now, the J stands for the writers, the Jewish writers, or the source who used primarily in their portion of writing the Pentateuch, they primarily used the name Jehovah or Yahweh for God. So uh, their part of the Pentateuch is referred to as the Jehovah's document. And they say that their work was done somewhere around the year 850 B.C., 850 years before Christ. Now the E stands for the writers or the source who primarily used the Hebrew name Elohim for God in their part of the Pentateuch. And they supposedly wrote their section of the Pentateuch around the year 750 B.C. Then the letter D represents the writers or the source who recorded the various accounts of the law in the Pentateuch, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. 
This Deuteronomist document was supposedly an improving alteration to the first two um, groups of writers. You know, in other words, these guys came along in 620 B.C., the Deuteronomist group, and they sort of revised a lot of what had been done by the Jehovah's fellows and the Elohist fellows, and they added a lot of the law to it. And then the P stands for the priestly document, which is said to be a work of a group of Jewish priests living around 500 B.C. who did more editorial revisions to all of the previous writings. So the Pentateuch is a composite work, they say, of the Jehovah's document, the Elohist document, the Deuteronomist document, and the priestly document. Now, those who hold to this JEDP or this documentary hypothesis regarding the human authorship of the Pentateuch and the book of Joshua have attempted to support their theory by pointing out supposedly different, supposed differences in the language and the style of various parts of the Pentateuch as well as they point out to certain customs and cultures which they, they dispute. They say, in other words, um, that each one of these four documents has its own characteristics and they can tell them apart and they have their own theology and they often say that their theology contradicts one another as well. So obviously these people do not believe in the di divine inspiration of the scripture. But the real reason, if you want to get to the bottom line, the real reason behind this theory was a desire to compromise with evolutionary teaching. Remember, it didn't become really popular until the late 1800s. The developers of the JEDP hypothesis were convinced by evolutionary teaching that man had not evolved to the type of culture which is described for us in the book of Genesis. They believe that he didn't develop, man didn't develop until much later than the time of Moses. So Moses couldn't, you know, Moses lived approximately 1400 B.C. And these fellows say that the, Bible, that the Genesis, the Pentateuch, was written anywhere from 850 to 500, pushing it way forward in time. So they say man hadn't developed that far, you know, back when Moses lived. They didn't have a culture like that. In fact, these men refused to believe that Moses could have even been the author of any of the books of the Pentateuch because they did not believe that writing itself was in existence in the days of Moses. So how in the world, I mean, I guess they have to throw out the Ten Commandments too, right? Because... <laughs> Nobody could have read them if they didn't have writing back then. Now, this view, although it is still held by a large, large majority of people in Christendom, this view has not been supported by the evidence that's there. It has not been supported by archaeology. It has not been supported by literary research. And it is definitely not supported by the Bible itself. Let me give you an example for, let's say, um, archaeology, from archaeology. Archaeology has proven beyond questioning that writing was definitely widely practiced, not only in the time of Moses. Now, Moses lived some 3,500 years ago from where we are. 
Writing was not only in existence at his time, but in fact, writing was in existence long before Moses. They have found um, writing appears in excavations from Egypt, from Mesopotamia, in the Indus Valley from some 5,000 to 6,000 years ago. You know that, don't you? Also, the cultural descriptions, you know, how the culture was, we find when we read the book of Genesis, particularly from the time of Abraham and after, has been the, um, the, the cultural descriptions have been demonstrated by archaeologists to have been precisely how eyewitnesses would have described them. In addition to this, linguistic studies done by many very qualified biblical scholars have repeatedly demonstrated that there is absolutely no validity to the arguments of the documentary theory in that the language or the vocabulary found in Genesis was much later than the time of Moses. There's no validity to that either. There is no logical reason to dismiss Moses as the author of the book of Genesis or of the other four books of the Pentateuch. In fact, there is a great deal of evidence to support Moses as the human author of these books, especially Genesis, and I'm going to give you those reasons now. Genesis is the first book, as we've been saying, first book of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the five books of the Pentateuch. It's the first one. And the Pentateuch is said to be written by who? Moses. Sometimes, in, and that's in the Bible over and over again, the Pentateuch is said to have been written by Moses. Sometimes, in fact, the Pentateuch is, is merely referred to as Moses. Sometimes, you know, you're reading in the New Testament, they say, well, Moses said. They're really referring to Moses' writings, those first five books. An example of this is found in John 5:46, when the Lord Jesus himself is speaking to the religious rulers of Israel, and he says this, For had ye believed who? Moses ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Not J-E-D-P, but he, Moses, wrote of me. To me, that's conclusive evidence right there, you know, that Moses is the author. Also, Luke 24, 44, the, the Lord Jesus, again, he summarized the entire Old Testament in this way. He said, he referred to it as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, and that just encompasses the whole Old Testament. So that's your first reason. The second reason why we believe Moses is the author is that each of the other four books of the Pentateuch actually states that Mo Moses is the author of their particular book. They actually state it. Now, how do the do documentary hypotheses guys get around that? Well, remember what I said? They said that they allowed people to believe that Moses, because they figured that would give the books greater authority. So what did they really do if this was true? They purposely deceived people, and they purposely wrote into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy the fact that Moses wrote it, but they were purposely deceiving people in doing that. But, of course, it's not true. The JEDP theory is not true. Um, and to prove that Moses is the author, each one of the other four books does claim Mosaic authorship. 
In your notes, I give you all sorts of the references. You can look them up and see for yourself. All right, third reason, the other Old Testament authors, other than the ones who wrote the Pentateuch, oops, still supposed to have that up there. The other Old Testament authors always refer to Moses as the author of the Pentateuch which includes the book of Genesis, of course. And the New Testament authors always refer to Moses as the author of of the Pentateuch, which, again, includes the book of Genesis. The The Talmud is a Jewish commentary on the Torah, and the Torah is the first five books of the law. In other words, the word Torah and the word Pentateuch, you could use interchangeably because they're one and the same. Well, the Talmud is Jewish writing on the Torah, and the Talmud says that Moses was the author of the Torah or the Pentateuch. Sixth reason, Moses was an eyewitness and a participant in the events of Exodus all the way through Deuteronomy. So why not? have him be the author instead of these guys who lived 600 to 900 years later and were not an eyewitness of those events. Seventh reason, Moses, having spent his first 40 years in Egypt, there he is as a little boy, isn't he cute? (laughs) He was well acquainted with the ways of the Egyptians. That makes sense, right? If he grew up, spent 40 years in Egypt, he's going to be very acquainted with the Egyptians. Well, the author, funny thing, (laughs) the author of the book of Genesis is very familiar with Egyptian names. Actually, Genesis has a larger number of Egyptian words than any other book of the Old Testament. Now, how would these other fellows living six to nine hundred years later who were Jewish and never lived in Egypt, how would they know all these Egyptian words and names and things like that? Eighth reason, in the original Hebrew in which the book of Genesis was written and the book of Exodus and all the rest of them, In the original Hebrew, the first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. Now, it isn't in our English translation, but in the original Hebrew, the first word is and. This, the use of this word connects Exodus with what? With the former writing of the same author, it would seem. You know, the author who wrote the first book, Genesis, just went right on and said, and, and then he went away into the book of Exodus writing there. Now, the book of Exodus clearly states that Moses is the author. So those are eight reasons right there why our conclusive evidence is that the Bible itself tells us, and we believe the Bible, that Moses is the author of Genesis. Men may come up with their documentary hypothesis. They might come up with their supplementary hypothesis. That's another one I won't bore you with. You can read about it in your notes. They might come up with their fragmentary hypothesis, which is yet another. I mean, they're going to, they do just about any kind of acrobats to avoid believing the Bible, that the Bible says Moses wrote it. Men might come up with all kinds of crazy ideas and theories, but we're going to settle for the simple fact that Moses wrote the book of Exodus, of Genesis as well as the other four books of the Pentateuch. Are you happy with that? I hope you are because the Bible, I believe, 
I mean, our, our model verse for this Bible study is 2 Timothy 3.16, which says that all Scripture is what? Given by God. All Scripture is divinely inspired. And so, you know, if we believe that, we're going to believe what Jesus said about Moses being the author. We're going to believe what the other books say and that Moses is the author of the book, the books. Okay, now we're going to talk about the method of writing Genesis. Now, I told you this is a technical lesson. They're not all going to be this way. Some of them initially up front will be. So don't get turned off and turned away because this is so technical. It's just some of the groundwork we have to lay. Concluding that Moses was the human author responsible for Genesis, there still remains the question as to the method by which he received his material and then transmitted it, you know, wrote it down. Now, there are three possibilities to the method that was used. One is that Moses received the contents of Genesis by direct revelation from God. Now, this could have come either in the form of audible words, which God dictated and then Moses just wrote down, or it could have come by way of visions, which were given to Moses, you know, like a a vision of, of the creation week and all that went on there, a vision of Adam and Eve and what went on there. You know, Moses could have received visions of those great events which occurred before he ever lived, about Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and Joseph. And then he wrote all those things down, guided, of course, by the Holy Spirit in everything that he wrote. So that's one, one method that could have been used by direct revelation from God. A second method would have been that Moses received the contents of Genesis by oral traditions which were passed down over the centuries from father to son. You know, Adam told Seth, and Seth told his son, and on and on down the line. And then Moses, under divine guidance, collected all of these oral traditions, and he wrote them down. And as he wrote, he was divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit as to what he wrote. Third option is that Moses received the contents of Genesis by taking written records, not just oral records, but written records of the past that Adam wrote down. Because, you know, we do believe Adam was the most intelligent man that has ever lived because we do not believe in evolution. Well, they actually think men is getting more and more intelligent, but we don't. We believe the opposite, that Adam was the most intelligent, and certainly he could write. He wrote them down, passed them down to the next generation, and they each added together all their records of the written records of the past. And then Moses, under divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, collected these, and then he put them together in a final form. Again, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit as to what he wrote. Now, any one of these three methods would be consistent with both the doctrine of the plenary verbal inspiration of the Scripture and also would be consistent with Mosaic authorship. However, as far as the first option is concerned, visions and revelations of the Lord generally deal with prophetic revelations of the future, such as we found last year, right, when we talked about the book of Revelation. What John saw about the future was in visions. 
And this is the kind of method God uses usually with such authors as Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and John in Revelation. The, um, the direct dictation method, you know, when God speaks and then men just write down what God says, that is primarily used when, or was primarily used when God was giving specific laws and ordinances, such as when he gave the Ten Commandments and when he gave the book of Leviticus. Most of the book of Leviticus is about the laws. However, Genesis is entirely given to us in the form of narrative records of historical events. And we find parallels to this type of a narrative record in such books of the Bible as First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and in the New Testament, an example would be the book of Acts. The writers of these other books either collected previous documents and edited them, such as Kings and Chronicles, and, of course, under divine inspiration. Or else they recorded the events which they had either seen firsthand themselves or that others had seen, you know, other eyewitnesses had seen and revealed to them. And we find this in in, uh, the book of Acts. This is how Luke wrote the book of Acts. He gathered together all the different eyewitness accounts everything, and he, under divine inspiration, put the book of Acts together. So perhaps this would explain, if this was the method used, this would explain why the book of Genesis, unlike the other four books of the Pentateuch, that Genesis does not specifically state that Moses is its author. Remember I said it's silent. Now we do believe that Moses is the author, but maybe this is why it doesn't say specifically that Moses is the author. Just hang with me a minute. While Moses actually wrote under divine inspiration the other four books of the Pentateuch, perhaps he served more as the compiler and the editor of the material which we found find in, um, in the book of Genesis. Now this would in no wise minimize the work of God, the Holy Spirit who infallibly guided Moses in his process of gathering together all the written records and then editing them, just as we know the Holy Spirit guided the editors and the writers of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and as he guided Luke in writing Acts. And it would still be most appropriate for the book of Genesis to be included as one of the books of Moses, since he is the human writer responsible for the form in which we find the book. Actually, if you're following me, this would actually um, give even further testimony as to the reliability and the authenticity of the events that we find recorded to us for us in Genesis. Since you see, they would be the written or the they would be the accounts which Moses wrote of actual firsthand testimony. Now, how would this work? For example, if you've lost me, listen to this. It would perhaps work something like this, or did work. God revealed to Adam, the first man, the entire creation account prior to Adam's existence. We don't know. Maybe, maybe God even gave Adam a vision of all that went on before his own existence. And then Adam wrote all that down. 
And then his descendants, you see, from the godly seed, Seth on down. Each one were led by God the Holy Spirit to preserve God's dealings with them in writing. Each person then, especially the one who was very godly, the one who came through the godly line, was bound to pass on to the next generation, both by spoken and by written word, the most significant events in his life. Now, these significant events would involve primarily that individual's relationship to God and his relationship to God's promises. And this is exactly what we do find in the book of Genesis. Well, Moses then, you see, could have taken these patriarchal family records, which would have been passed on to him when it was known that he was going to be the deliverer of the Jewish people. The records were given to him, and he could have compiled them under divine inspiration into the book of Genesis. Now, we do know, we do know for a fact that the Jewish people, it was very, very critical for them to pass on their family records from one generation to the next. Where did this start? Well, it could have started all the way back with Adam. That was a very critical thing for them to pass on their family. I mean, I wish it was with us. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? We, we don't do that. We should. Well, Moses, having been very well educated in Pharaoh's court in Egypt, he was very prepared by God to be the man to have taken both the written and the oral testimony of his forefathers and then begin to write the history of the world under, of course, Holy Spirit inspiration. Norman Geisler, in his work, which is called A Popular Survey of the Old Testament, he says this, quote, Moses is the only person we know of from this early time period who had the ability to write this book. The rest of the Israelites were as a nation were a nation of uneducated slaves whereas Moses was a highly educated son of the king Moses was the only one who had both the interest and the information to write Genesis being Jewish Moses would have had access to the family records of his ancestors which were no doubt brought down to Egypt by Jacob end of quote Okay, very quickly, one more thing to cover, and then we'll let you go. The date of Genesis. Based upon the Bible, we can know with a great deal of accuracy when Moses lived. 1 Kings 6.1. Now, if you have your Bibles, you might want to open there. You don't have to because I'm going to read it to you. But 1 Kings 6.1 tells us this. This is not real interesting, but it tells us some dates. It says, And it came to pass in the 480th year, after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt, that's when Moses led the Exodus out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziph, which is the second month that he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord. We know, we know uh, from history that the fourth year of King Solomon's reign over Israel was around the year 966 B.C., okay? Now, knowing this, we then know that Moses 
led Israel out of Egypt some 480 years earlier. All right, we know when Solomon's fourth year of reign was, so we can go back 480 years according to what 1 Kings 6.1 says, and that will tell us when Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt. What year do we come to? Well, we come to the year 1446 B.C. So based on this information, and how old was Moses when he led the people out of Egypt? He was 80 years... I got that up there. (laughs) You almost got me. I was going to say, very good. But you all know that anyway, right? Because Moses' life was lived in increments of groups of 40. All right? He spent, we know now, okay? We can know the approximate years of Moses' life. His first 40 years were spent where? In Egypt, right? And they dated from then based on all this other information, from 1526 approximately to 1486 B.C. Now, you know, when you're talking B.C., as you get toward the cross, the numbers get less. You know, it's the opposite of our side of the cross. Then the next 40 years were spent in Midian. Remember that? Away from the... Israelites. He spent his next 40 years in Midian, so that would have been approximately 1486 to 1446 B.C. And then where did Moses spend his last 40 years? Right, wandering around in the wilderness, and that would have been approximately 1446 to 1406 B.C. Now, we would also know that Moses would only have had access to the records and the writings of Israel when he was with Israel when he was with the Jewish people. Since he was not with the Jewish people during the middle 40 years of his life, which he spent in Midian, we can then conclude that he either wrote the book of Genesis sometime during his first 40 years when he was in Egypt or when he spent those last 40 years in the wilderness. Because in both of these times, he was with the Jewish people and he would have had access to all their patriarchal records and family histories. Now, there is a difference of opinion, of course, as to the earlier or the later date among those who do accept, as we do, the Mosaic authorship of Genesis. Those who believe that he must have written Genesis during his first 40 years, oops, when he was with the Jews in Egypt, they give essentially two reasons for saying this. First of all, they say that this is the time when Moses came to his faith in God. You know, so that would be a good time for him to have written Genesis. And because of his desire to deliver his people from Israel, he may have spent a lot of his time studying Israel's history and God's covenant promises to Israel while he had access, you know, to all of those records. It's the first reason they say for the fact that Moses, they think Moses wrote Genesis during the first 40 years of his life. Second reason they give is that during the wilderness wanderings, they say Moses would have just been too busy leading the people around and um, taking care of all their, their, their groanings and moanings and complaints and everything. And also they say he would have been too busy because that was the time when he wrote the other four books of the Pentateuch. Now, on the other hand, those who hold to the later dating that he wrote uh, Genesis while he was in the wilderness, 
They also have very good reasons for their view. First of all, they say that it is obvious that Moses did write the other four books of the Pentateuch during the wilderness wanderings. That is obvious because that's when he was, you know, that's what they described for us. So we know he wrote those when he was in the wilderness. Forty years, they say, 40 years is a long time. And it's not unreasonable to assume that he could also have written the book of Genesis during these 40 years. When you think about 40 years, this is a long time to write five books. A lot of men can do that, no problem, especially if you're under divine uh, inspiration. Second reason they give is that Moses would have been far more spiritually mature during his years in the wilderness than when he was a young man living in Egypt. Egypt. They say, in fact, Moses was not very spiritually mature at all when he was living in Egypt because what did he do? He actually committed murder, and that's what sent him to his second 40 years out in Midian. So they say it would seem rather unlikely that the Holy Spirit would write, would inspire him to write Genesis when he was, um, you know, not very mature spiritually and had just committed murder. Uh, third reason they give is that it was during the wilderness wanderings that God met with Moses face to face, so to speak, on a number of occasions. If God himself had shared the truths of the creation story and of Adam and Eve and all the rest of about Abraham and everything, if he had shared those events with Moses when he met with him, you know, it would make sense that Moses would have written those down during that time when he was wandering in the wilderness, when he did meet with God face-to-face on a number of occasions. So whatever may be the true date for the writing of Genesis, we can say that it was either during his early years when he was in Egypt or it was in his latter years when he was wandering around in the wilderness. And personally, I prefer the latter date, that he wrote the book of Genesis during the last 40 years when he was wandering in the wilderness, when he also wrote the other four books of the Pentateuch. The recipients of the book of Genesis are, in other words, who did he write the book to? Well, he wrote the book in particular to the nation of Israel. But in general, God, the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Genesis through Moses to the entire human race. Because God is a God of both truth and love, his love is bound to lead him to reveal the truth to all men, not just to Israel, but he wanted to reveal the truth to all men of all nations and of all generations. In Genesis, God reveals to men the truth of their origin. In other words, where we came from. He reveals to us the truth of our purpose Why are we here? Well, we find out in the book of Origins, the book of Genesis. And he also reveals to us the truth of our end and final destiny, where we are going. God's very purpose in creating man in the first place is for man to know these three great truths. Aren't those the truths we all want to know? Where do we come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? Well, he reveals those to us in the book of Genesis, because he wants us to glorify him for who he is as both creator and redeemer. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to continue with our introduction to the book of Genesis, and we're not only going to present for you the purpose of the book, but also some very special features about the book, 
And then I hope, I hope, we'll see, that we'll actually get into the text itself. And very shortly after we get into the text, we will begin our discussion of creationism versus evolutionism. Thank you for your patience. I was not going to have notes for you this year. I was just going to give you an outline and let you take notes, but I know all of you were praying against that, those of you that got wind of that, because hard as I tried not to do notes, I I sat there at my computer trying to make an outline, and you know what happened? I kept thinking, no, they need to know this. I can't put that in. i got to put that in a paragraph. And then I had another paragraph. And then they have to have this information because otherwise I'll never get it. (laughs) And what do you know? I wound up with just the same old thing that you're used to. (laughs) But I do promise you, I really do promise you, the homework this year is going to be a lot easier. And... The reason for that is because Genesis is, a, Genesis is a whole lot easier than the book of Revelation. If you passed Revelation, you, you can do anything. I mean, everything is downhill from there. I mean, that, that was the apex of difficulty. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then I guess we're going to sing a song, okay? Father, thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for all the wonderful truths that this book is going to reveal to us. And thank you, Lord, for loving us so much that you wanted to tell us the truth about where we came from, why we are here, which is to glorify you, and where we are going, and how to get there. That's the greatest truth of all that you revealed to us, that if we accept your son and his death for us, we can know where we are going and that we will spend eternity with you. And I pray, Lord, again, that if there's someone here who doesn't know that for sure, that she would settle that issue today. And we give you the glory and the praise for all you will accomplish in these years ahead of us as we look at this wonderful book of beginnings. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.